Well, I'm excited to uh, pick up where we left off uh, last week uh, as Dustin preached uh, through the uh, kind of first half of Jesus's sermon. We're going to finish Jesus' sermon here in, uh, in John chapter 6, as this is the longest uh, recorded sermon in uh, John's gospel of uh, Jesus. And so last week in, um, in uh, verses 22 uh, through 39, we were in, introduced to the first I am statement by Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And I uh, just want to pause there for a moment before we dive into our passage and just highlight the significance of that statement. Uh, this is, of course, one of seven uh, I am statements um, by Jesus. And what we have seen throughout John's gospel is we've seen the significance of the seven uh, miraculous signs by Jesus that are recorded uh, by John, uh, signifying the deity of Christ through those miraculous signs. Well, I wanna show you here in the next slide here, the seven uh, I am statements of Jesus that we're gonna see throughout uh, John's gospel. So we're on the first one here, I am the bread of life. And for a Jew at this time, for uh, someone to make this I am statement, this is a claim of deity, okay? For the Jews at this time, they would have recalled what happened in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3, you had the moment of uh, the burning bush with Moses. Moses was tending to his sheep and God started speaking to Moses with this bush that was lit on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. And God through the bush tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to uh, ask him to let my people go. And Moses comes up with all these different excuses why he can't do that, eventually submits to the Lord. But then he says, well, what if the Israelites ask me, what is the name of your God that sends you? What should I say? And if you remember Exodus 3, God says, tell them I am who I am sends you. Okay, so I am who I am for uh, the Jews is a statement of who God is. That is a, a description of the nature and the identity of who God actually is. And so Jesus uses that statement throughout John's gospel, but he adds something to it. See, Jesus could have just said, I am who I am. Uh, and he could have said that seven times and the Jews would have been like, oh wow, he's making a claim of deity here. He thinks he's on the same level as God, but Jesus takes it a step further and he doesn't just say, I am who I am, but he attaches something else to it. He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the gate, I'm the vine, and so on and so forth to show them I'm not just God, but I am God and I am here to save you. And I'm here to satisfy you and redeem you. That I'm the God who's come near to you as the chosen Messiah. And so that's something that we're gonna see through each of these seven I am statements, how these uniquely approaches the people of Israel in order uh, to save them. Okay, now um, I've said this numerous times about John chapter six. I think John six is maybe my favorite chapter in John's gospel because it is so significant. We see so many things in this chapter alone about Jesus's ministry and even about the Jews at this time. We've said over and over again that at this moment, this is the, the highest point of Jesus's popularity. He has fed the 5,000, which was more like 15 to 25,000 people, including women and children. And so he's got this large following of people and then he goes into this sermon. And after this sermon is over, he's only gonna have about 12 people. He's only gonna have his disciples that are left following him. 
Now, man, if, if I ever preached a message like that, a sermon like that, where thousands of people left me, like that would say something about the nature of that message. And so for us, just to take a deep dive into this sermon, I wanna wrap up the second half of this. We're seeing, yes, things about Jesus, but we're also learning something about the Jewish people at this moment. And the big issue for the Jews at this time is the problem of unbelief. Okay, verse 41, where it says, now the Jews grumbled about him. That's the turning point where the people were enamored with this Jesus guy who could you know, feed all of them with five loaves and two fish. But because of this sermon, they start to grumble about him and they start to complain. And we're starting to see the evidence of unbelief come to the surface. Now, in looking at John chapter six, we haven't hit this um, a lot over the last couple of weeks, but I think it's important to highlight all of the different allusions to Exodus that we see in John chapter six. I want you to put on your thinking cap for a moment because um, we're gonna see some things in the Old Testament that are coming up in John six that are very intentional by John because he's trying to show us something about the nature of belief or unbelief for the Jewish people. Just wanna highlight four allusions from Exodus that we see in John chapter six that John is intentionally setting up for us as the readers because he wants us to recall the nature of unbelief in the Jews in the wilderness. We've already seen two. The first one happened uh, with the Passover. Remember, John chapter six takes place during the time of the Passover. The Passover was first instituted in Exodus chapter 12. And so that was kind of the first tip of like, man, something is happening here with these connections to Exodus. And if that was the only thing, we'd kind of move on, okay? That wouldn't be a big deal. But when you stack these four, and some people think there are five on top of each other, we are clearly to recall the nature of unbelief from the people of Israel in Exodus. So Passover is one. The second one is the burning bush, what I just talked about with this I am statement. The Jews here at this time would have recalled the first time that God declared that he was the great I am, which would have been in Exodus chapter three. Well, there are two more and they both happen in our verses 41 through 59. Let me give you to them right now and then I'll unpack it for the rest of our morning. The third illusion is the manna. Okay, we've got bread that they're talking about here with, 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 with which we've seen with Jesus's miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. And then the fourth illusion is the grumbling. Okay, the complaining of the Jews here is the same grumbling and complaining of the people of Israel in Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 16. If you guys wanna put that on the screen here, um, the Jews would have recalled this to their mind where it says in verse four of Exodus 16, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Jump down to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. And in the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness, a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground, and when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was, which is what manna means, what is it? And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. 
Now, there are all of these different allusions to Exodus. And for us, we kind of stand back as the reader and we think, man, what, what is the connection here? What is, what is Jesus trying to drive into the Jews here as he's teaching them? Well, I think what he's trying to drive into them is this, that the same unbelief that took place in the wilderness in Israel is the same unbelief that's manifesting itself here in John chapter six, as Jesus is teaching them in the synagogue. That there is this trapping of unbelief that the Jews here are falling into. And so for us this morning, the, the way I wanna, uh, want us to view this, this is a warning for us. Okay, this is written for us as an example to make sure that we are examining our own hearts, that we don't fall into the same trap of unbelief. I want you to write down a passage that you might go to later on today. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses one through 11, Paul talks about the people of Israel in the wilderness related to the complaining and he says, these were written to us as an example that we may not fall into the same sort of disobedience. Okay, so for us this morning to kind of maximize this warning, I want to kind of compare and contrast the unbelief of the Jews here in, verse, in chapter six, and then the manifestation of belief that Jesus describes in the rest of John chapter six. Okay, so we're gonna do a little bit of compare and contrast, and I'm praying that this is just helpful for us today. Like if you're an unbeliever today, I pray that you see the difference between believing in Jesus and, and having unbelief in your heart. I'm also praying for us as believers that as we battle unbelief every single day, that we would have tools from John 6 to be able to battle and fight against unbelief in our own hearts. Jeff Vanderstel in his book, uh, Gospel Fluency says this about unbelief, he says, he says, I'm an unbeliever and so are you. We slip in and out of believing God's word about us and trusting in his work on our behalf. We forget who he is and what he's done and in light of that, who we are. There are areas of life, your normal everyday busy life where you disbelieve God, his goodness and his gospel that we fail to connect the way gospel truths actually matter to everyday life. Like this battle of unbelief is not just something that the people of Israel in the wilderness felt, not just something that John 6 felt. This is something that as believers, we have to fight every single day. And we're gonna learn how to do that this morning. So the first thing I want us to see is the manifestation of unbelief in verses 41 through 52 by the Jews. As I talked about, the Jews have been grumbling about him before we get into the weeds of this passage, I want you to just think for a moment, uh, if you've ever witnessed a parent who is trying to teach his or her young child how to eat the first couple of times. We just had a bunch of parents up here. So many of you are living through that right now. If you've ever been out in a restaurant and you're witnessing a parent trying to do that, like it is, it is one of the most frustrating and most difficult aspects of parenting. If you have children like mine, who for some reason they don't like to eat. I don't know if they got my genes or what, but um, experiencing this firsthand is frustrating because you're putting this plate of edible food, nutritious food that they need in order to grow before them. And if they're not eating, they're doing a couple of different things. They're either taking it, they're smearing it like everywhere except for in their mouth, or they're sometimes throwing the food on the ground or throwing the plate, which is my favorite, or they just sit there and they just stare at the plate of food like they're disinterested. 
Like, like they don't understand, like oh, I'm supposed to take that and, and feed myself right now because they don't see the value of food. When you compare and contrast like kids that eat well and kids that don't eat well, like it's night and day. And in fact, I, I think that's a, a really helpful illustration of kids that eat well and don't eat well uh, in comparison to believing and not believing. Like there's something in this sermon that Jesus is intentionally trying to connect for us when he talks about being the bread of life and he's saying that in order for you to have eternal life, you must consume it, you must eat it. Okay, so there's this illustration that Jesus just naturally uses in his sermon that I want us to use uh, this morning because I think there are similar characteristics of children who do not eat and people who do not believe in Jesus. Okay, think for a moment, reasons why children do not eat the food that's in front of them. Okay, there, for us, there are dozens, but let me give you two, okay, two, and even that I see in this passage. Number one, sometimes what the Beals girls do is they complain and they grumble about the food that's in front of them. Like instead of consuming, they talk about what they want to have instead of what's right in front of them that their taste buds have been trained to enjoy and to desire anything else besides what's in front of them. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is they do not believe that this food is good for them and best for them in order to grow, right? They're not seeing the value of, right, of what is right in front of them, okay? So those two, and there are many other ones, but those two reasons I think show up in the manifestation of unbelief with the Jews here as they're interacting with Jesus. Okay, so let me just unpack those two reasons here and show you where I see this. Verse 41, as we've said, the Jews are grumbling about him. Just like a young child who's not eating because they're complaining, right? Like they want something else. So they say, we just had this meal last week or why can't we have dessert first and then dinner, which is always a hard argument. I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Um, or, you know, they'll say, why can't we have Taco Bell like daddy, like, I mean, all these reasons, all these excuses and, and complaining and grumbling, they spend all that time doing those things instead of consuming the food that's in front of them. Well, the Jews are doing exactly that. They're grumbling instead of feasting upon Jesus by faith and therefore demonstrating unbelief. As I've pointed out already, this is similar to the reaction of their great forefathers in the wilderness in Exodus after the Passover, after God miraculously redeemed them from Pharaoh, they're out in the wilderness, they complain. Like, we're hungry. Like, God's not feeding us. Let's, let's go back to Egypt. And yes, we were slaves, but at least we were fed there. And so, of course, God miraculously sends manna every single day. And then, of course, they complain about having the same thing every single day. Well, in John chapter six, the Jews are hungry in the beginning there. And so Jesus miraculously feeds them with five loaves of bread and two fish. And then the very next day, and we saw this last week, they want more food, All right? Verse 34, they say, give us this bread always. And they take it a step further and they say, yeah, Jesus, that was a really cool miracle that you did yesterday, but we want you to feed us in the same way that our forefathers were fed in the wilderness. We want you to send manna from heaven and we want you to do that every single day. And then Jesus responds in that sermon that we saw last week and he says, no, 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 I am that bread. Like, in fact, I'm better than the manna that if you place your faith upon me and you consume me by faith, you will never hunger again. 
And then in verse 41, that's when they start to grumble and that's when they start to complain. They probably say to themselves, that's not what we want, Jesus. That's not what we deserve. That's not part of, of the plan here. You're supposed to miraculously feed us every single day. And the plan is for you to become king and for you to conquer the Romans. Okay, that, that, that's our plan. That's what we want. This is not matching up to that. And they start to grumble and they start to complain. And look, this is how unbelief can manif manifest itself in our own lives. It's through the grumbling and it's through the complaining of what God is and what God is not doing. Look, we, we struggle with this. this. This is a big one for us. I know in my own life, we may not voice these things to God, but these are things that we might think and we might feel where we say to God, this is not what I want. This is not what I plan for. This is not what I deserve. Again, we may not say this because we're you know, clean on the outside, right? But these are things that we might feel in our own lives. This grumbling and complaining starts to surface. We say, no, 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 this is not the spouse that I want. This is not the, the person that I married, God. This is not the, the career path that I sought out for. This is not something that I deserve. These friends or lack of friends is not what I want. This season of life is not something that I deserve. And, and we start to, to blame God. And what's underneath that, the root of our complaining is unbelief. It is believing that you can do better than God. It's failing to trust in God's sovereign plan, in his goodness, that what he has handed to you has first passed through his hands and it's for your good and for God's glory. Look, if gratitude and thankfulness is the soil by which all virtue grows, then grumbling and complaining is the poison that chokes out our joy. And in fact, I think the grumbling and complaining in our lives reveals the idols that are kind of hiding out in our own hearts. You wanna figure out what to repent of, just look at what you're complaining about or what you're grumbling about. And so the Jews are unhappy with Jesus's plan. We see a little bit of their unbelief come out in verse 41. Let me show you uh, manifestation number two of their unbelief happens in the very next verse. Verse 42 is that they are blind to the value of Christ, All right? Just like a young child who uh, refuses to eat because they're complaining. Children can also refuse to eat because they're blind to seeing the value of eating, right? They're not convinced that eating this is actually going to be uh, good for them. And sometimes the reason for that is because of the familiarity of the food. Like we do this three times a day, we eat food every single day. And because it's so familiar, they don't see the value of it, especially if it's vegetables. And look, we do this with other things in life. Like you might go and buy a, a beautiful plant for your house. And originally when you bought it, you thought it was, it was beautiful to add value to your home. You bring it home and yet you see that thing every single day and you start to take it for granted. It loses its value in your sight. And so eventually you dislike it and you throw it out. Familiarity can breed contempt, that it can do something to our sense of what is valuable and what is not value, valuable. And the Jews do this with Jesus. Let me show you where I see this. In verse 42, they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
You see that there? Remember where they are. Remember, according to verse 59, they're in Capernaum. Okay, this is, this is Jesus's hometown. Okay, this is where Jesus grew up. So the Jews here, they knew all about Jesus for 30 plus years. They knew his parents. They knew Jesus when he was in diapers. They were very familiar with the identity of Jesus. They knew what color eyes he had, what his hair looked like, if he was right-handed or left-handed. They had all of these facts about Jesus. And yet, because of that familiarity, they, it was not leading them into worship, into seeing the value and the treasure of Christ. But part of the reason why this is manifesting itself in unbelief is because they failed to treasure Jesus. What they were so familiar with didn't lead them into worship. Look, it was great that they were around Jesus. It was great that they were familiar with Jesus, that they were drawn in by his teachings and his miracles. But failure to see the worth of Jesus and the beauty of Jesus will ultimately, ultimately lead you to contempt and reveal unbelief. And man, when I read that, that was such a warning to me, like as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, I spend time with the, with the word almost every day. Like this is, this is what I do, right? I've got, I'm so familiar with Jesus. I'm around Jesus so much. And yet the challenge that the Holy Spirit put on my own heart is, Chris, are you just around me or are you with me? Are you communing with me? Or are you just gaining more knowledge about me and talking to church people, going to church every week, spending time in the, in the word, but are you actually treasuring and worshiping me? Like, I don't know if you could resonate with that, if that manifests itself in your own life or you're familiar with Jesus, but challenge with, is this actually leading me to treasure Jesus more and more? Because look, this is, this is part of the problem with the Jews. They knew Jesus, they were familiar with him but it wasn't leading them to worship. And look, we can fall into that mindset of just spending time with the Lord and just checking it off our box of things to do, right? Kind of moving on instead of using that time of, I don't just wanna become familiar with Jesus. I want that white hot passion for Jesus to ooze out of my heart when I spend time with him. Because if you fall into that habit, of becoming more and more familiar with Jesus, but it's not leading you to treasuring him. Look, that's gonna lead you into the idol of looking to other things as being more satisfying. You're gonna start to believe the lie that there are other things that are just as valuable as Jesus. And that's kind of how unbelief can swim in our hearts if we're not careful. And we see that kind of surfacing within the Jews here unconvinced that Jesus is the son of God. Well, what do we do with unbelief? How do we, how do we uproot unbelief in our own hearts? What, what does Jesus then say uh, to them? I wanna spend the rest of our time looking at the manifestation of belief that Jesus kind of describes for us in verses 53 uh, through 58. I'm gonna kind of skip over verses 44 through 51, largely because Jesus repeats himself from what he has uh, already said. And we looked at that last week, but he does add something else in verse 51. If you look at verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven he said, and he's already said that, but then he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Okay, now the Jews are listening to this sermon. They're in the synagogue 
And I think they're starting to put two and two together of what Jesus is talking about here. They're starting to think, okay, on one hand, Jesus is claiming to literally be the bread of life, okay? Which for them, it's probably bizarre. And then number two here, the second thing they're putting together is that Jesus is saying in order to have eternal life, they have to eat and consume the bread of life. And so in verse 52, you can almost hear them kind of trying to make sense of this. Is Jesus actually saying we need to eat his flesh? Like he's not referring to cannibalism, is he? Which obviously is a huge no-no for obvious reasons, but furthermore, it was restricted within the Jewish law to eat meat with blood. So the Jews are just confused here, but Jesus doubles down. In verse 53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay, so the Jews at this time are like, this guy is crazy. We have no idea what to do with him. And that's probably why they begin to leave Jesus. Now, what does Jesus mean here when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood? What does it mean to feast upon Jesus? Well, let me, let me first explain what it does not mean. Okay, what this is not referencing is the Lord's Supper. This is not talking about communion. I know our uh, Roman Catholic friends believe that this is evidence why uh, communion or the Eucharist can save you. Catholics even believe in something called transubstantiation, which uh, believes that Jesus literally and physically becomes the elements when you take communion. So when you're eating that cracker, that piece of bread, that's literally physically Jesus's body. When you drink the wine or the juice, that's literally physically Jesus's um, blood there. Now, I believe that, uh, that that's a incorrect uh, view and I'll give you three brief reasons why I believe that. Number one, um, the Greek word for body and for flesh are different. Okay, and that's very significant because when you trace the New Testament and it's talking about the Lord's Supper, it only uses the Greek word for body, for the body of Christ. Here in this passage, it uses the Greek word for flesh. And so I think the English translations are right to make that distinction because it's talking about two different things. The second reason why I believe uh, that view is wrong is because if you think about it, if Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper here, his audience would have no understanding of what he's even talking about because communion had not been instituted yet. Okay, he just kind of assumes that they know what they're talking about, but he's not going to institute the Lord's Supper until another year. Okay, the last supper, the night before he's crucified, is a year from now. And so they would have no knowledge of what he's even talking about. But the third reason, probably the strongest argument, I think in my opinion, is if Jesus is talking about the Lord's Supper here, then what he is saying as to what gives you eternal life, the one requirement is by participating in the Lord's Supper, which would not only contradict the rest of the New Testament, but would contradict what Jesus has already said in John 6 in this sermon, right? And specifically in verse 47, where he makes it abundantly clear, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Okay, so that would contradict what he has already said. And so what I think Jesus means here, when he says, you must drink my blood, eat my flesh, is he's using a metaphor in order to describe genuine faith. Okay, he's trying to figure out a way to describe the manifestation of genuine faith. And Jesus is describing how utterly dependent 
and consumed we must be in order to have genuine faith. We must be so consumed with Jesus that it looks and it feels as if you're eating him and drinking his blood because you're so dependent on Jesus Christ, on his life and even on his death that you believe that he is the bread of life, that he is the only nutrition for your soul. And so metaphorically, you are consuming him by faith. I think the reason for this is because, look, remember Jesus's whole purpose for coming is to eventually, a year from now, to get up on a cross and to die in the place of sinners. That's where he's headed. That's what his whole ministry is driving at. And look, that's the only reason why we can be forgiven of our sins. That's our only hope in this life. It's because Jesus became our substitute. Look, that's not something you and I could have done. We could not have died for our own sins and been given forgiveness because we're guilty, because we have sin. We needed someone who was perfectly righteous, perfectly blameless, perfectly holy to get up on a cross, to be our our substitute in order for God to say, yes, that satisfies my standard of perfection and my wrath is at peace. Only Jesus could have done that, the God man the great I am. And so he's making this such a big deal, but you need to consume me because that is your only hope for eternal life. And look, if you're swimming in unbelief, maybe you're here, you're an unbeliever, or maybe you're a family or a friend of someone who got dedicated this morning, you just wound up in church today. Look, don't walk out of here missing the greatness and the beauty of Jesus that he came to die for your sins. He came to to take away your guilt, to take away your shame, for you to take faith and say, I'm not trusting in myself, I'm not trusting in my own good works, but I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my eternal life. We hope you make that decision today. That's why we exist as a church, to point you to the beauty of Jesus. Look, one more thing I wanna point out about this, just to make this abundantly clear, just even the structure of these two verses here are so similar where verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40 is structured so similarly in the Greek. It says, everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. A feeding upon Jesus is looking and believing for eternal life. Look, as I close this morning, um, you know, it, it's helpful to kind of explain the text, unpack some of these things to see where things show up in Exodus. But I was just praying this week, God, help me just to be helpful on Sunday. Like, how can I be the most helpful pastor preaching kind of in the weeds of John 6? And so for the next couple of moments, I, I wanna just help us this morning and give us three practical ways that you know you are feasting upon Jesus. Okay, now I could just walk off here and say, okay, you need to funnel your desires towards Jesus. You need to make sure that you're feasting upon Jesus, pray and close it out and just trust the Holy Spirit might make that plain to you. But I just wanna take it a step further and just explain three ways that you can know that you're doing this well in your own life, okay? Here's here's, uh, reason number one, that you know that you're feasting upon Jesus is when you look at your life and there are regular spiritual feedings going on. Okay, like this isn't just a one-time thing of feasting upon Jesus and living for yourself. No, no, no. There are daily, consistent, regular spiritual feedings going on in your soul. 
And look, we know this to be true physically, like to grow physically, to be healthy, you need consistent and regular nutritious food. But this is also true spiritually. We need to feed ourselves with nutritious food of Jesus. And so these regular spiritual feastings of Christ reveals that Jesus is a priority, that it's a value and it is a desire. And so what do I mean by this? Well, I think that in verses 54 through 58 help us with that Greek word for feed. If you look at the word feed, it shows up four times in verses 54 through 58. And in the Greek, that word literally means the slow process of gnawing and chewing. Okay, it is implying that feasting upon Jesus is not a fast food experience. This is not grab a power bar and and be on your way, but feasting upon Jesus implies this, this unhurried meal of spending time with the Lord. Look, when you think about it, what, What's involved in the best meal? When you think about the best meal that you've had, it it involves some common things. It involves time of preparation. It involves unhurried time. It involves a a substantial source of of food and nutrition where you're not rushed. You can enjoy every savory bite. I think the same is true spiritually. Think about the best meals with Jesus. There's, There's preparation. You have unhurried time. You've got a substantial source of spiritual food that you're feeding yourself. Like you know that you are feasting upon Jesus well when your time feels like a savory, robust meal. When you can almost feel like your spiritual taste buds invigorated because you're feasting upon the bread of life. Like when you get done with that meal, like you can't wait to feast again. Like that's when you know that you're feasting upon Jesus well, when Jesus is that real to you. I love how uh, James Boyce kind of puts it, he puts it a little bit more bluntly. He says, is he Jesus as real to you spiritually as something you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and French fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people, he is much less. And look, the reason why he is sometimes much less than what's put before us is because we're not regularly feeding ourselves in an unhurried manner. Look, we participate in these regular spiritual feedings through God's word, that God's word is what allows us to be consumed with Jesus. And through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the powerful conviction of God's word, we are able to experience Jesus as much as experiencing a meal from McDonald's. Like by faith, we can, we can actually experience the realness of Jesus through his word. When we come to the word, we say, God, show me Jesus. Show me more of, of who he is. And, and that, that is the aim of scripture is to show you more of who Christ is. John 5, verse 39, Jesus literally says that the scriptures all point to me. You read them to find me. The Bible is this one long story of God who is rescuing us in our rebellion, of God meeting us with grace in the midst of our guilt, of God saving us in the midst of our sin. Even with our badness, he shows us his goodness, which means that the Bible is primarily not a recipe for Christian living, 
but it is primarily a revelation of who Jesus Christ actually is. This is primarily not a self-help book, but this is primarily a window by which you see the beauty and the power of Jesus and therefore you are changed. Sometimes we come to the, to the Bible, like we come to McDonald's of just kind of a quick fix to, to, you know, to get us through the day. And yet the Bible's whole point is to show you Jesus Christ by seeing him, you might behold him and be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The written word of God shows us the reality of the incarnate word in the slow process of gnawing truth so it digests into our soul. Secondly, you know that you're feasting upon Jesus, I'll be quicker here, means that you look more like Jesus. You've heard this before, you are what you eat, right? I think that's true spiritually. Like physically, when you're consuming just sugar and chips and fast food, like that's going to impact your behavior. The same is true spiritually. Your spiritual diet impacts your spiritual condition and how it is that you're living out the Christian life. So when you have regular feedings of Jesus, you can see that in the result of you looking more like Jesus, that you're growing in godliness, you're repenting of sin quickly, you're bearing more fruit of the Spirit. And so you can tell that your time with Jesus is being evidence in the way that you live your life. And the last thing here, and I'll close with this, is that you know that you're feasting upon Jesus when you're satisfied with Jesus. Like when you are being fulfilled with Jesus. And look, this isn't to say that you're not gonna have off days. This isn't to say that the spiritual taste buds aren't flat sometimes, right? That happens, you go through seasons of that. But overall, there is a consistent satisfaction with Jesus because you are consistently funneling your desires to him and experiencing that joy. That type of satisfaction that comes is not part of just being around Jesus, but it is communing with Jesus. Remember what Ezekiel said of his time in the word, it was as sweet like honey, Ezekiel three. The Psalms also describe the word of the Lord as sweet like honey in Psalm 119. Jeremiah said that he had eaten the words of the Lord and experienced joy, Jeremiah 15. And like that, that is how we train the taste buds of our soul is by a regular spiritual diet of Jesus. John Calvin laments and he says, how few are there who are satisfied with Christ alone? And how about you? Are you satisfied with Christ alone? Do you feed on his death for you as your only hope of eternal life? Do you feed on him daily in his word as nourishment for your soul? Do you enjoy all that he is for you both now and for eternity? If not, the answer is fairly simple. Change your diet. Church, I wanna lovingly just exhort you today and encourage you to analyze your own spiritual diet, that maybe the spirit of God through the word of God, maybe he has revealed some areas of unbelief in your own heart. Maybe you can resonate with the Jews. Maybe there are other areas that you need to look at and you need to repent of. Maybe you're making a connection there. Man, I'm seeing unbelief here and it's because of what I'm feeding myself. And maybe this morning you need to dedicate yourself in the retraining of your spiritual taste buds and saying, look, every day I'm going to consume my soul with the word of God and meet Jesus who is the incarnate word.
It's my hope and my prayer for us as a church. We wouldn't be familiar with Jesus and miss him even on Sundays. So let me pray and then we'll have a chance to sing out to him. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for John 6. Oh God, there are so many things in here that I even skimmed over. And God, I trust that the spirit would make that plain to us. God, we just thank you that Jesus so very boldly declared that he is the bread of life, that he is what satisfies us, that he is what nourishes our soul. God, I pray as we even sing this last song that we wouldn't miss Jesus, that we wouldn't just sing because this is what we do, but that we would sing because we wanna treasure that which is valuable. So God, would you put that into our hearts now, I pray in Christ's name, amen.